You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. I am Garrett Ashley Mullet. Today is May 8th, 2021. It is a Saturday. This is episode 113 of the podcast episode 48 of season three. Today we're going to talk about an article published Monday, this past Monday, May 3rd, on CNN. Their website has this piece titled, A Canadian Oil Firm Thinks It Has Struck Big, Some Fear It Could Ravage a Climate Change Hotspot. What's interesting here is that you don't have emphasis placed on the fact that this is an African nation which would like to develop their oil reserves. No, no, we're going to emphasize that this is a Canadian oil firm. Also, we're going to highlight that some fear this could ravage a climate change hotspot. So lots of ooga boogas and wonga wonga and watch out and be very, very afraid be afraid, be very, very afraid. But before we get into that, I'd like to talk about my kids' presentations last night. Four families from our homeschool group, TBG, decided it would be fun, it would be good, it would be beneficial if our kids had a chance to give some end-of-year presentations, to get some practice, to get some experience getting up in front of people and talking. And Yes, it's going to be nerve-wracking, and yes, it's going to be a, uh, a new thing for most of them, but they have to do it at some point, and better to get that experience started right now so they can stop being afraid of it, and they can understand what it is, and they can get better at it. Because public speaking, if you're in a situation where you need to do it, can be a way of advancing good interests. It could be a way of advancing your career. It can be a way of uh, helping a organization or a group of people or a culture to make an important shift that it needs to. If you are a skilled public speaker and you're able to message what needs to be told to your constituents or your crowd, then you can make a big difference. And if you're a poor public speaker, even if your ideas are very, very good, a lot of times you have an uphill battle because your image at the podium is a distraction from what it is that your ideas would lead people to do. And they're busy feeling sorry for you because you're nervous and you're sweating and you're wringing your hands and shaking and all that. And they're not paying attention to the substance of your ideas. So it was good. Last night we got together and... Six of my seven children had presentations. The youngest ones, their presentations were fairly simple. They did a good job. I'm glad they got up there and they just went for it. They didn't seem all that nervous. It seems like the older ones, the longer they had to talk, the more time they had to realize that they were nervous. But at the outset, they weren't as nervous. And then as they got going... It uh, changed a little bit as he realized, hey, wait a second, I'm in front of these people and they're all looking at me and this is awkward, da 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 
But it was good. It, my oldest son, Josiah, he did a presentation on the Second Amendment. And I wish I would have helped him more with it uh, sooner. I feel like I maybe uh, gave him too long working on it by himself before I jumped in and helped with the polishing. I helped him with the research part of it early on, but I should have jumped in sooner and, and helped with the organizing the information and getting it polished and getting it to uh, you know, a first draft stage sooner than the day before. So that was, that was my fault. Uh, but you know, these things are difficult because, you know, when it comes to, especially as your children get older, your sons get older, you have to walk this fine line between helping and handicapping. And what I mean by that is that help sometimes is not actually helpful. Sometimes when you help too much, you become a crutch. You become a barrier to your child learning that thing on their own and really owning it. I don't want to jump in and do too much and then all of a sudden he doesn't feel like it's his project or, I mean, that goes for any of the older three who kind of did their own project. Daniel did a great job reciting Opportunity by Edward Rollins Sill and Evelyn did a great job of talking about Paddle to the Sea and Enoch did a great job of talking through the days of creation since that was part of his school year this year. But Josiah having his Second Amendment presentation, Eli doing a presentation on logical fallacies, Solomon doing a presentation on how to draw a lightning dog. They each picked their topic. They each prepared their topic. And at the end of the day, if it went really, really well or if it went really, really poorly... Or if it was a little bit of a, a mix of the two, there were some things that were really highlights and there were some others that were room for improvement, they can feel like that's theirs, right? At the end of the day, they can feel like they were responsible. And so then the question we want to ask on the other end of it this morning or this weekend is now that you're done, now that you're through it, If you had it to do over again, what would you do differently? How would you prepare differently the next time in light of how it went this time? Do you feel like you would spend more time on a certain aspect, less time researching maybe, more time writing out a script, or do you feel like you had too much words, uh, too many words on your script or not enough words on your script? Did you give yourself too much detail? Did you give yourself not enough detail? What do you think? And just have them think through that. I think if we can get them to process this, then it'll make them more confident communicators in general, not just speaking in an official capacity, in a formal capacity when they're invited to to give a talk or get up in front of a group, but even just on a one-on-one individual basis or in small clusters of people, they'll be better communicators, more intentional about their language and That's important regardless of what kind of public presence any of them have because we all have to communicate, right? So enough about that. Moving on to this CNN piece. The backstory on why I'm paying any attention to this 
goes to a conversation I had with my cousin Micah earlier this week in which he told me that this oil find in Africa is possibly going to change forever the landscape of sub-Saharan Africa. There might be actually a lot of good that comes from investment in this play. The African nation in particular that this story is centered on, which is Namibia, is excited about developing their oil reserves. They're for it. They want to do it. This is the third largest, from what I heard, third largest in the world, and it is not developed at all just yet. And so if they develop it, then that's money for their people, that's money for development, that's money for investing in schools and roads and infrastructure and all kinds of things, all sorts of things in southwestern Africa. So then the question Micah posited was, suppose there were jobs that came up in Namibia related to this discovery. What would you think about taking one of those jobs? What would you think about moving your family to Africa, especially in light of the way things are going right now in America? We have inflation concerns run amok. We have an activist presidential administration that wants to go after the Second Amendment, that wants to go after the rights of individuals and churches and corporations to operate according to the dictates of their conscience with regards to LGBTQ matters. You have the pushing of an agenda which would see even young children being transitioned from what gender they're born as to what gender their parents think they can win accolades by converting them to. You see government spending run amok with no end in sight. And at the same time, domestic development of our own energy supplies in the form of oil and gas and coal being curtailed, being worked against, being stigmatized, being opposed. And so the question is, how long do we have? How long can we keep this up? Where our industry, we work in oil and gas. I've worked in oil and gas since 2012. That industry is being choked, choked by continued suppression of demand as far as shutdowns and lockdowns and restrictions are still in place in some places or the effects of the shutdowns and the lockdowns last year are still affecting supply and demand demand, uh, dynamics. You also have government funds being paid to people who are not working and who maybe don't feel any special need to go find a job just yet because they're getting money from the government. They may be even getting more government money than they were employment money before. So you have all these dynamics, and what's a person to do when they're concerned about potential food shortages, everything getting ridiculously expensive because our government is spending like a drunken sailor by the trillions? Once we start talking about trying to encrypt all of our private messages to one another, 
trying to invest in cryptocurrency because the dollar is not safe and the stock market is rigged. Once we start talking about taking firearms training because we have a radical administration that might just as soon sick Black Lives Matter on us as the ATF, maybe it's time to consider if there are job opportunities in some other country, in some other continent. So my answer to the question of what would I think if some oil company offered me a job in Namibia is in the affirmative. I would definitely consider that. If the dollars and cents could line up, I would take a look at it, particularly if we're between a rock and a hard place here domestically. Now, one of the tricky things, one of the difficult things, is that if my father and my father-in-law end up moving to Colorado like they have signaled they want to or planning to, that limits our options in the near term for how much exploring and moving around the world we can do. Now, if we're in an emergency situation and we've got to get out of Dodge, that's one thing. But otherwise, if it's just things are getting a little tight, it's a little uncomfortable, it's a little cramped, we've committed to sticking around. But that doesn't say 5, 10 years from now, 10, 15 years from now, that we have to live right here where we're at. So I think if Namibia has all of these oil reserves and they want to develop it and they're going to need some outside help to do that in a tech-savvy way, if they're going to need instrumentation and operations personnel to come in and get it started and show how it's done, well, it just so happens that I've got a background in operations and in instrumentation and I wonder what that would pay. You know, one of my favorite songs is not necessarily the original Africa by Toto, but the cover by Weezer. I like the song in any event. There's something about the dramatic way that it builds that is just mysterious and it pulls you in. There's something about the stories of Dr. David Livingstone going into the heart of Africa disappearing. Nobody knows where he is or what happened to him. And then all of a sudden being found. Dr. Livingstone, I presume. The whole world in rapt attention, wanting to know, was he killed? Did he make it? Did he die of disease? Was he eaten by lions? What happened? I think also of the movie The Ghost in the Darkness, which is in my top five to top ten favorite movies of all time list. The Ghost in the Darkness featuring Val Kilmer and Michael Douglas. It was a 90s movie about a pair of lions which were preying on the local populace and also crews working on building a railroad across Africa. The Savo Man-Eaters, they were called, and they were known as The Ghost and The Darkness. Those were their names. The whole movie is this exciting adventure in some foreign, strange place. And 
I personally think it would be very exciting to have a real-life adventure, have a real-life foray into what they call the dark continent. I don't know which appeals to me more, the idea of moving to Africa to get away from America, as it is seemingly teetering on the edge of disaster here, flirting with disaster, threatening to tear itself apart at the seams, or going to Africa on its own merits, just to be a part of whatever this is going to be. Like I can say, I was a part of the North Dakota Bakken oil boom. I was there. I was part of history. It would be exciting to be a part of whatever's going to happen in Namibia. Namibia, according to Wikipedia, is an 80-plus percent Christian nation. It is one of the more stable countries in the region. It is a high-cost-of-living country where everything pretty much is imported from outside. But maybe those dynamics shift a little bit with the development of oil. If they have oil reserves and they can sell oil to their surrounding countries and they can develop that resource themselves, more power to them. But let's read the article from CNN. We'll check it out. We'll see what they have to say. I'll bet you it is not fair and balanced, objective, even-handed reporting. From the top, David McKenzie and Ingrid Formanek. CNN video by Peter Rudden. Updated 423 a.m. Eastern Time, Monday, May 3rd, 2021. Kavango East, Namibia. Syringa trees rise out of the Kalahari sand in the wild expanse of Kavango East as the humid heat warns of afternoon showers. It's easy to imagine this place has looked the same for a hundred years. Except that is for the road. Recently widened, graded, and ramrod straight, new roads like this mean change is coming. Carved out of the trees and surrounded by a chain-link fence, that change comes as a shock. A giant oil rig towers above these flat lands, dwarfing the trees. In this northeastern corner of Namibia, on the borders of Angola and Botswana, a Canadian oil company called Recon Africa has secured the rights to explore what it believes could be the next, and perhaps even the last, giant onshore oil find. Okay, stop stop for a second. Since forever, speculation has abounded that... Oil is running out. We don't have much left. We're going to have to get off of it. This is the last. This is the last. This is the last. This is not the last. Mark my words. Moving on. The oil field that Recon Africa wants to harness is immense. The firm has leased more than 13,000 square miles or some 30,000 square kilometers of land in Namibia and neighboring Botswana. The find, potentially containing 12 billion barrels of oil, could be worth billions of dollars. And some experts believe the oil reserves here could be even bigger. Quote, we know we have discovered a new sedimentary basin. It's up to 35,000 feet deep, and it's a large and very expansive basin, end quote, says Craig Steinke, the co-founder of Recon Africa. Behind him, a team is operating a 1,000-horsepower rig capable of reaching depths of 12,000 feet. Even with COVID-19 lockdowns, they are working fast. Steinke is confident, he says, a detailed 
aeromagnetic survey shows the basin is large enough and deep enough to contain oil. Quote, every basin of this depth in the world produces commercial hydrocarbons. It just makes sense, end quote, he said. Recon Africa is calling this part of eastern Namibia and western Botswana the Kavango Basin. It's part of a wider geological formation already known to geologists. Some 110 million years ago, it formed at the bottom of a shallow inland sea. Basins are depressions in the Earth's crust formed mostly by tectonic forces over hundreds of millions of years. Okay, let's pause for a second. This goes back to something I've talked about in other episodes And that is how our attitude towards the age of the earth and the origins of the earth fundamentally alters our expectations for how we should engage and interact with creation or whatever you want to call this. If you don't believe that there is a creator, it doesn't make sense to call this creation. I happen to believe that there is a creator and that God created the heavens and the earth in six days and rested on the seventh. But if you don't, and you believe that the earth has been around for millions and millions and millions and millions of years, then maybe the thought that this oil has been in the ground for millions of years, and that we don't know what happens when you pull this much oil in the past hundred years, you pull this much oil out of the ground and burn it. Maybe that thought is concerning and scary. For me personally, however, when I believe that the biblical genealogy and history is reliable and that puts the earth at 6,000 to 7,000 years old or at least it puts man's life on earth at six to 7,000 years, then I don't think it's been all that long that this oil has been in the ground really truly. I believe that God put it there and also I take seriously where God gives the creation mandate. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. He gives it to Adam and Eve. He gives it to Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So he reiterates it. It's an important thing that God wants us to be doing. It's part of our purpose. That's part of what he made us to do. Be fruitful and multiply. Get a wife, have children, spread out, exercise dominion over the earth. But it's interesting to me that the history lesson here has to include that this is millions and millions of years old. And of course, they're coming from their worldview, so they're going to tell it from their perspective. But I look at this and I think God put that there for a reason. This is just another place for us to exercise dominion. If there's oil there, that gives us an opportunity to exercise dominion in Africa in a way that we haven't as a human race created in God's image to date. We haven't done that to date. Moving on. Supporters of drilling say the find could transform the fortunes of Namibia and Botswana and that the countries have every right to exploit their own natural resources. After all, so the reasoning goes, the developed world has spent the past century exploiting its own fossil fuel reserves and getting rich in the process. Opponents are using a familiar argument against oil exploration. They believe a major find could devastate regional ecosystems. Okay, stop again. Based on what? Based on what? Point to a region, some other region, which has seen its ecosystem devastated because of oil and gas development. 
oil exploration. Show me. Saudi Arabia? It was a sandy wasteland when they found the oil, and it is still a sandy wasteland today. It's not a sandy wasteland because they found the oil and developed it. It's just a sandy wasteland, period. It is what it is. Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania is covered in trees and hills, and they've been producing oil for 100 years. Pennsylvania was a very forested, hilly place before they started developing the oil, and it is still a very forested, hilly place after them having developed the oil. North Dakota and Montana, at least eastern Montana, western North Dakota, very dry, flat, lots of badlands geology. It was that way before they started drilling the oil, and it is still that way. It hasn't devastated the local ecosystem one iota to develop those reserves. It's not going to devastate the regional ecosystem in Botswana and Namibia. What it might do, if you happen to subscribe to this idea that carbon emissions are the primary driver of climate change in our day, it might change the whole world's ecosystem, but I've read the science on that. I've listened to the science on that. I've thought long and hard about it. The claim that man-made carbon emissions, burning of fossil fuels, is even a significant, much less primary driver of climate change, of temperature changes, of rising sea levels, of drought, etc., etc., is patently false. There's a lot of hyperbole and people trying to get funding and people trying to push agendas, people using climate change as a bogeyman to get themselves power and wealth and money that they have no right to. Trying to disenfranchise vulnerable, weak-minded people into going along with whatever they say. We say jump, you say how high because we've just convinced you that otherwise, if you don't, the world is going to come to a fiery end in a jiffy. Same here. Opponents are using a familiar argument against oil exploration, CNN reports. They believe a major find could devastate regional ecosystems. Well, they're wrong. Period. I don't care what they believe. They're wrong. It doesn't matter to the actual outcome what they believe in terms of their wish-casting this kind of doom-and-gloom apocalyptic dynamic does not make it so. Moving on. <clears throat> and they have a powerful tool in the fight against hydrocarbons. In the face of the climate crisis and in a region uniquely vulnerable to rising temperatures, should oil be exploited at all? Okay. So that's what this is. This is, we don't want oil developed no matter what. Because we are just against it. Period. Part of why they're against it is because it does lead to human flourishing. It leads to greater material wealth, greater capacity to support life. They don't want Africa to be able to support more people. It would fundamentally transform the fortunes and the outlook of Africa to be able to develop their own domestic energy. And these global warming alarmists, these 
chicken littles running around saying that the sky is falling. These boys who cry wolf don't want the oil developed, period. Whether it can be done so safely, whether it is going to devastate the regional ecosystem, that's not the point. The point is that they have this religious conviction. It is a religious doctrine to them that man needs to not be fruitful and multiply. We need to shrink our population and we need to contract and we need to each be producing less, consuming less. And then all together, if there are fewer of us producing and consuming, then we take up less and less and less space on the earth. Unlike neighboring Angola, Namibia doesn't have an oil industry of its own to speak of so far. Yet, it is already being hammered by the world's dependency on fossil fuels. That's just not true. That's just not true. This is patently false. This is not journalism. This is hyperbolic fear-mongering. This is fear porn. This is manipulation. This is evil and wicked. It just is. The person that wrote this depends on a daily basis on fossil fuels for electricity, to make the components that their phone is produced from, that their computer is made out of. If they hop on public transportation, they're using fossil fuels. When they turn on their lights, they're using fossil fuels. When they use a thousand things around their house. They're benefiting from the development of fossil fuels. But now they want to piously, condescendingly tell the people of Namibia and Botswana, you can't develop your own. Wow, how paternalistic. What's that about white splaining? What? <laughs> no, just no. Stop it. Quote, southern Namibia already has twice the global rate of warming. In northern Namibia, it is a staggering 3.6 degrees Celsius per century. End quote. Pause. You don't know that. Per century over the past how long? This is climate models. This is computer models. This is not good science. This is not honest. This is dishonest. But just like CNN to do that, to throw that out there, to try and get people stirred up against African nations and their own self-determination and their own self-interest. Let the people of Namibia and Botswana pursue their self-interest. And this is in their self-interest. I, for one, would relish the opportunity to be a part of Botswana and Namibia developing their oil reserves. Full stop. I would love it. We'll see. We'll see what happens. God willing, we live and do this or that. God willing, this country that I'm from endures in some recognizable fashion. And we can sit tight for the foreseeable for the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years, however long the good Lord gives us to live. But I, for one, am in favor of this. I think it's fantastic. And I just hope that these pious, self-righteous idiots don't go in and ruin it, put the kibosh, try to destroy anybody who is helping in the extraction and exploitation of these reserves. This belongs to the people of Namibia and Botswana. 
It's their choice. It's their call. Stay out of the way. But that's all I've got for this episode. Let me know what you think. If you find out more about this, you have a perspective that's a little bit different, reach out. I'd love to hear from you. But I am going to go and assemble some new furniture for my office at Jackson Lake Gas Plant near Weldana, Colorado. It's a Saturday, but that's the best time I can think of with everything having come in yesterday to load this furniture in my truck. I've got a new desk. I've got a new futon, and I'm going to take it to Jackson Lake and assemble it, disassemble the current desk, move it across the street. It's going to be a little bit of time, a little bit of effort today, but I should finish up the third book in C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy. More on that later. We'll do an episode of this podcast talking about C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy, but that will have to wait. For now, I thank you for listening. With all that said, until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. <laughs>